Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and use promo code RINGER, that's R-I-N-G-E-R, with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit bonus that is earned over time as you play. Plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter contests. So remember, that's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. And before we get started, I also wanted to mention that The Ringer now has merch. Hey, I've been working here for a week. I don't have merch. You can have merch before I have merch. Go to bit.ly.com slash ringer merch, where you can find shirts and hoodies. A portion of the proceeds from each purchase will benefit Charity Water, a nonprofit organization that provides clean and safe drinking water to people in developing nations. Again, go to bit.ly, B-I-T-L-Y dot com slash ringer merch. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. I am Ben Lindbergh, a staff writer for TheRinger.com, and the sweet sounds you're hearing are our new theme song by none other than Ben Gibbard, frontman for Death Cab for Cutie and the Postal Service. He's a man of many side projects, and his latest side project is writing a theme song for us. I've been a fan of Ben's work for a very long time, and I'm honored that he decided to slum it and write an original for a baseball podcast. Of course, he is a huge baseball fan, and he tried to baseballify our theme song. He stuck some organ in there. He stuck some bat cracks in there, and he's actually our second guest on this episode. So later on, we will be talking to him about that theme song and also about Ichiro Suzuki, who is three hits away from his 3,000th in the majors. Also about the Mariners. Ben is a longtime Mariners fan. Mariners are facing some difficult decisions as the trade deadline approaches. Speaking of which, this is our last episode before next Monday's trade deadline. Michael and Mallory did some trade talk on Tuesday, but for our first segment, I want to revisit that subject from a slightly different angle and talk a bit about how rumor reporting happens and how most transactions come to light before they're actually announced by the teams. So this weekend, when you're refreshing Twitter or MLB trade rumors, you'll have a better grasp of how all that information got there. So to tell us a little bit about that, to the extent that he can, without disclosing his sources, and also to tell us if he expects any big moves to be made between now and the deadline, we are welcoming in a well-connected writer and reporter, Jeff Passan, author of the excellent baseball book, The Arm, and a writer for Yahoo Sports. Jeff, hello. Hello, Mr. Lindbergh. How are you? I'm doing well. So Verizon just bought Yahoo for $4.8 billion. So How much of that were you worth? $4.7 billion, <laughs> okay. obviously. I mean, the, you know, the extra $100 million, that's like Woj. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was a deal breaker. It was either we get passing or the deal's off. <laughs> so I, I think part of the deal was actually to get rid of me, but hopefully that's, <laughs> hopefully that's just rumor. So starting with a very basic question about all of this, I am wondering what makes the rumor mill work. It's fairly obvious what writers get out of it and what the companies that employ those writers get out of it. Maybe not as much as they used to when getting an exclusive story meant that you actually owned it all day. But there's still some cachet to being a newsbreaker and getting those eyeballs for however long they linger. So what do the sources get out of it? What is the typical motivation of someone who tells a reporter about a move that's not public knowledge yet? That's like the question that I ask myself all the time. <laughs> and and it, it makes the job – like there's an existential part of this job that I'm simply not comfortable with uh-huh. because I'm asking somebody to almost at all times – betray a confidence of the organization that employs him, that pays him or her, that puts food on the table, that uh, covers health insurance, that does all of these things. Now, there are some times where I get information that comes directly from the person mm-hmm. who is allowed to disseminate that information. But right. a lot of times it's coming from someone who's not supposed to be telling me. And I often ask myself, what do I have to give back to this person? Uh-huh. And the answer is quite often not very much. <laughs> and 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 it's it's troubling to me because I feel like a leech and, and that I, I it's it's parasitic. You know, I'm getting this from this person because they like me, because they like the quality of the work I do, because they feel like it's important to get something out there with a certain voice, someone who's going to tell it honestly. 
I'd like to think that they don't look at me as someone who's going to buy into spin, which is, you know, it's very rare. I think that I do try and get spun. And if I do fall prey to that or fall victim to that, I feel like a moron afterward and am ever more vigilant that that's not going to be the case. I know a lot of people out there, that's, that's where they get their information by people who want it to come out a certain way. And, and that's all well and good. It's part of doing this job well, though, and I, I don't know how good I am at this part of the job. I'm certainly not Ken Rosenthal. I'm certainly not John Heyman. I think those are really the standard bears as far as breaking information goes. And I'm sorry, I just got a text here. This is the trade. No, seriously, Ben, like this is the trade deadline. Of course. Yeah. I am, I am glued to my phone and I am getting a text and <laughs> it's not a trade. So that's a good thing because I would probably have to hang up in the middle of this podcast. Uh, well, this is a, a parasitic interaction on our part too, right? I'm, I'm getting information from you. I'm not giving you that much. I'm giving you a platform, but you have yeah. your own platforms. And, and that's the thing. I mean, I know there are some reporters out there who, who feel like in order to get information, they have to trade information. I'm not terribly comfortable doing that because I feel like if somebody is telling me something that I'm betraying their confidence by passing it along to someone else. And I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be someone who's known as untrustworthy or unethical. But look, the, the, the game is, is hard. And that's really what this is. It is all a big information game. And doing what I do this time of year makes me remarkably uncomfortable at times. But <laughs> it's, it's also an extremely gratifying thing. I won't lie. It's extremely gratifying when I beat someone on a story because they're really freaking good at what they do. And when I do that, I feel like I'm on their level. And that's a pretty, pretty edifying feeling. And to what extent are people who tell you things exposing themselves, to what extent are they putting themselves at risk? Because with a typical transaction that goes down, I mean, how many people are aware of it at the point when you become aware of it before the public knows, you know, if, if you tweet it and the GM who just made the move sees that you tweeted it, does the GM know, okay, well, it was one of these X number of people who just went and told Passant about this. Like, do you ever hear about consequences? Is there ever some sort of you know, inquisition to find out where the leak was. I've heard of general managers uh, asking to check text messages. Oof, wow. I've heard of general managers asking for phone records. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the lengths to which I have to go to keep my sources safe are far. Yeah, and 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 I have to. It's something that I'm not just willing to do. It's part part of it. I I frankly enjoy that part as much as anything, because whenever you break a story, right, there will be people guessing who your sources are, and I and and I'm not exaggerating here. I'd say 95% of the time they're wrong. Uh -huh. Like earlier this year, a general manager was pissed off at me that I had written something, and he texted me and he said, "I know this guy gave it to you." <laughs> And I hadn't talked with that guy in six months. Uh -huh. So, I mean, the, that that made me feel I, – I had a big smile on my face when I – you know, it's never fun when somebody's like texting you, yelling at you, calling you an asshole and, you know, just up and down berating you. But in that particular moment, I kind of enjoyed it. It was fun because he was totally dead wrong and he had absolutely no idea where this was coming from. And you take pride in that. The, the most important people – in your career, if you report news, are your sources, and the very last thing you ever want to do is put them at risk in any way, shape, or form. So is there some sort of give and take, at least sometimes, is there an information brokering element to it where someone will tell you something and ask what you're hearing about something else, and you will actually provide useful information for that person's negotiations, or are there trial balloon examples where they just want to release something just to get a, a sense of what the reaction to it would be and sort of using you in a way? Or is there anything that teams do get out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there can be that. But my threshold is 
and and I'll I'll say this to them. I'll say, are you giving me this so you can rile somebody else up, or is this information actually legitimate and tangible? And am I writing what the truth is instead of helping to facilitate some sort of a negotiation? Yeah. And and over the years, like in order for someone to to be a good source in my mind and somebody whom I'll trust. I feel like I, I need to have seen something from them, information that is correct. If they're telling me something that's off the record for now, eventually they do give it to me. And, and I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know about other reporters, but actually putting out there what I know, you know, I may do 25% of it mm-hmm. because a lot of it, frankly, is just in the nascent stages. And I try not to do that type of reporting. Try not to say that this team and this team have talked. Because you know what? You could come up with a random team generator, Ben. That exists. There is a Twitter bot that does that. And the random team generator could come up with two teams. Mm -hmm. And I could tweet out there that these two teams have talked. And about 98% of the time, I'd be right. Uh (laughs) And so you'll see, like during during the trade deadline, I have not tweeted all that much because I, I think I could I could certainly go chasing after after retweets and followers and, and all that stuff. And I'm I'm not saying that's what people do, but I think that would be a very easy way to do it because for my money, people are more interested these days in the hot stove and the trade deadline than they are in the actual games themselves. Yeah, certainly at some times of the year. I truly believe that. And it's a sad state of affairs, but it's almost like the possibility is greater than the reality. Yeah, well, it's, you know, there's so many games in baseball that no one day, no one game changes the picture all that much, but one move possibly yeah. could. So unless you're talking about end of the pennant race or playoffs, the most important thing that your team did that day might be the big trade they made. So I, I yeah. understand it to a, a certain extent. And I don't know if Tim Dirks, when he started MLB Trade Rumors, understood that this was going to be the case. I mean, it's almost like when I went to Yahoo, you know, more than 10 years ago now, uh, I did it at the time because I thought it would be a much easier way to get back to like a newspaper column job. Like uh-huh. I didn't realize that the internet was going to be where everyone was writing and that Yahoo was going to be the, the best place to work for the last decade. I had no idea that that was the case. But uh, to to have foreseen just the explosive growth of, of rumors, and I think it's, especially with trade rumors, the site itself, it's bigger in baseball than than basketball or football. It's it's just staggering to me the, the way that this this industry has been created and how my job has changed because of it. My, my job changed because of two people, Adrian Wojnarowski and Ken Rosenthal. It changed because of Woj, the way that he just absolutely owned his sport and, and showed people at Yahoo that this is the way to cover a sport in you know 2010 and 11 and beyond. And it changed with Rosenthal because he did so well on baseball and, and was so dominant. It was like either you have to be as close to him as humanly possible uh, or you're just not going to be relevant anymore. And so it was it was sort of a shit or get off the pot situation. And I remember I used to hate going to I still do hate going to the winter meetings, but I really used to hate going to the winter <laughs> meetings because they were like the four days of a year where I felt as incompetent as I do on any other day. And my wife sat me down. She's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Just like sack up and figure out how to do it. And, you know, over the last five years or so, I think I've certainly gotten better at it. I still got a long way to go, though, to catch up with those other guys. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, it takes a conscious decision to become someone who breaks news. I I write about baseball regularly. I talk to people in the game, but they generally don't tell me about the moves they're making. And I generally don't ask. That's just not. It's hard. It's hard, man. Oh, yeah. It is way, way harder. Like we've talked about writing a book before and how that's how that's difficult. It's a different kind of difficult, though. That's just like a like a sort of mentally draining exercise. Right. Like doing trade rumor stuff is like emotionally draining because I I come to this point where I'm like, have I bugged this person too much? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> and and it is just out of the kindness of their hearts that they are still helping me out and talking with me and not telling me to go kick rocks. <laughs> right. 
And so, I mean, it seems like there's a split. There are some people who do it just sort of out of obligation or it, it pays the bills, it gets attention. And, you know, you really want to be working on this other in-depth investigative story, but you've got to do some news breaking just to, to make your boss happy. And then, you know, there are people who like the, the thrill of the chase and they like to be first. And I guess there's an element of both, right? It sounds like yeah. both of those things play into it for you. Yeah, I feel like I'm the sort of the center of that Venn diagram. You know, deep down in my heart, I'm a storyteller and I like writing really long, in-depth, well-reported pieces. I'll tell you something, though, and, and this is something that I didn't realize at the time. It, this has made me such a better reporter, and I understand the game so much better now because it forces you to have conversations with people. And they're not just, you know, they're not interviews. You you get to know people better when you become somebody who's uh, obsessed with information and with news and with understanding things better because this allows you to to really get into the deepest part of the game i can't call someone up and okay i i shouldn't i have been guilty of this and i try to work on it every year but i i shouldn't call someone up the last week of july and say what you got I mean, this is something that it's it's a year-round relationship, and that's how you have to treat it. You know, you, you can't just go and, and visit on Christmas and Easter and say you have religion. No, uh -huh. I mean, this is something that you have all year round. And, you know, if somebody calls you up and says, what do you think about this person? That's where the information trading is to me. What do you know about this person personally? What do his teammates think about him? Would he fit well in this clubhouse? It's those personal assessments that, you know, having covered the game for 13 years now that I can at least provide reasonably. And, you know, the book helped a lot out a lot too i mean i'll hear from people what do you think about how we're handling this guy or what could we be doing or who should we talk to uh, in the baseball community who knows about the arm you know things about things like that and so that that's the type of information that i can provide rather than you know what trade offers are out there that haven't been reported or anything like that yeah so I, at some point i assume you go from having to initiate every conversation and dig for every story to actually getting tips or unsolicited info is that just a gradual process or was there some big story you broke and then that opened the floodgates and people came to you as someone they knew could do this there were a couple of times where i wrote actually it's been like critical columns that people have res like reached out to me just blindly reached out and you know th that's how our relationship starts right there i mean i always feel weird it's almost like the equivalent of walking up to a woman at a bar and introducing yourself and there's always that awkwardness if you don't have like some a plus game that is going on and when it comes to talking with baseball dudes i just don't have a plus game like that's not there <laughs> so it takes a little while sometimes and when they make the introduction that makes things a whole lot easier but that doesn't happen very often the book honestly the book has helped out tremendously with this too because a lot of people in the game have read it and i think they appreciate what i was trying to do and and appreciate how long i worked on it and how in depth i got with the the characters and and especially you know daniel hudson and todd coffee who were major league ball players for a while so that that sort of thing uh it, it's sort of become self-seeding and uh it helps out long term but it's I envy Rosenthal and Heyman and the types of Rolodexes they have and the number of sources that they have and the information that they're able to churn out constantly. Like, I'm absolutely in awe of that. Right. Well, they've been doing this almost as long as both of us have been alive, probably. They, so they, <laughs> that helps. They, they have. But you know what? John Morosi does a really good job, too. And, sure. been, and he hasn't been doing this as long as I have. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I still have more hair than he does. But he... Uh, <laughs> He, he came on, I think, probably three or four years into when I was doing this. And, I, you know, just to have seen his career path, it's it, Morosi is like a testament to hard work and not caring about being a pain in the ass. And sometimes that's what it takes. And that's why, you know, for all of the, the rookie idiot mistakes Chris Cotillo makes, and there are plenty of them, I actually respect him because he's coming into this thing and he's saying, I don't care how many people I'm going to annoy. If I annoy 10 people, one of them might still talk with me. And that's how you do it. I mean, there is a shamelessness that's involved with it. 
that it's it's just part of it and and i respect the people uh who have that and who are willing to put themselves out there and stare at failure which is inevitable when you're doing this and still end up stronger because of it yeah does the saying everyone remembers their first time apply to breaking baseball transactions do you remember the first move you reported oh man i think the first big one well i'd say the first big one i had was you darvish going to texas uh-huh. uh it's pretty big yeah, and I remember I got the tip about three hours before it happened. And I was living at that time. My wife and I had bought a house, and we were remodeling the house, and we were living in this little crappy apartment in south, like the southern suburbs of Kansas City. And I knew that my source was right, but I didn't know that he was right enough to go and tweet it out. Yeah. And so I'm thinking get a second source, get a second source, get a second source. And I, you know, I figure out who, who would know and who can give it to me. And I call him up and I'm like, okay, you know, this is what I got. Is this right? And he says, I don't know. And he hangs up the phone and I text him. I'm like, you do know. He's like, <laughs> he said, well, I can't tell you. And I'm like, well, by telling me, you can't tell me you're essentially confirming it. He's like, no, I'm not. So you really get into the like blink once if this, blink twice if that territory. Oh, I've I, I did that. I did that last. <laughs> I did that last week with the Chris Sale jersey confirmation. Uh -huh. I had, I had heard it. Someone had it secondhand, and I needed a second confirmation on it firsthand. And the guy said, I can't tell you. And I said to him, If you can't tell me, then tell me this. If I print this, will I be wrong? And he said no, and I went and did it then. Okay, yeah, that's good so, enough. So with with the Darvish stuff, it it I mean it was honest to God, Ben. It went on for two hours and forty five minutes, and I'm pacing around this apartment with this awful old carpet and just white walls, like a stove that uh, I mean the stove like lit on fire every time you turned it on. I mean it was just a piece of crap place. That was before Verizon paid a fortune for you. <laughs> <laughs> before the $4.7 billion. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you know, I'm just pacing around. I'm saying to my wife, I'm like, I know this is right. I know this is right. I know this is right. But if it's not, I'm dead. And that's, you know what, man, that is always the feeling that you have. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many stories I've missed out of just that tiny little sliver of doubt. Because you know what? When you're wrong, you're dead. Like, that's the thing. You can't miss in this job. You just can't. You can't miss on something big because the only thing you have when you're trying to break news is the credibility of your information. And if your information isn't any good, what good are you? Of course, do you think how many people who are reading you actually know what your record is, right? I mean, it's easy to, there's such a constant stream of rumors and constant stream of news and so many people in this business and no one's really keeping score. I'm sure, you know, everyone who does this knows who the best people are and they know their own records and maybe they know their competitors records but your average reader might not know two days later if you yeah. do a story no no they they might not but i i'd like to think that people pay more attention to when i put something out there because my record is good and, and i do stand behind it i mean i think especially on big things i i don't miss and i don't miss because i you know i i'd like to say that i'm a gap hitter and <laughs> And I occasionally muscle up and can hit a home run, but I do not strike out or I try like hell not to strike out because that's that's a death sentence. And may, you know what? Maybe readers don't keep track of that. But to me personally, if I'm going to be doing this, I can't miss. And that's the standard to which I'm going to hold myself. And I, I hope that's the standard to which, if not everyone, at least others will hold me. Yeah, well, one source that keeps track of who reported what is MLB Trade Rumors. And I, I want to ask you about this specific deal, the Vogelbach-Montgomery trade between the Cubs and the Mariners. Recently, which you were involved in breaking, but so were several other people. And so the citations at the bottom of the MLB trade rumors post, and I will just read it out loud. It says, ESPN analyst Tim Kirkjian first reported during a television broadcast that the two clubs had a trade that was in advanced talks. Bob Dutton of the Tacoma News Tribune tweeted that a deal was in place, and Yahoo's Jeff Passan, that's you, reported that Montgomery and Vogelbach were involved. John Morosi of Fox Sports and MLB.com tweeted that there were other players in the deal. Yep, see, see, there, now, <laughs> now there I will say, and, uh -huh. and I complimented Morosi beforehand, like something like that just makes me laugh because 
uh, it was implicit in my tweet that there were other players involved. Uh -huh. I, I said Vogelbach is a piece. And sometimes 140 characters limit you only to saying so much. But does that, it, by saying a piece, does that not imply that there are more? Right. So smart tweet by Morosi to jump in there and yeah. not actually add any new information, but get credit <laughs> for it. Good tactics. All right. And then more specifically, and Fox's Ken Rosenthal first reported Blackburn's inclusion. Lastly, USA Today's Bob Nightingale reported Prius as the fourth player. So that is six people breaking one trade, coming together like Voltron to, to report yep. this single transaction. How does that happen? Because is it just being leaked piecemeal? I'll give this bit of information to this person and I'll give this and just I'll dangle it to that person. Or does each person who each reporter is talking to only know a small part of the deal? How does this happen? Well, having chased Ken Rosenthal a billion times, I can tell you how the end of the store, uh, how the end pieces come together. Uh -huh. uh, you know what? I'll, I'll start from the start. I could totally see, and I don't, I, again, I know none of this, but I could totally see Tim Kirkjian having talked with a scout or, or a low, lower level executive from either of the teams that said, we've been talking with the Cubs, we're close on something. Then Bob Dutton, who I grew up with at the Kansas City Star, who is the Royals beat guy for the two years I was there, whom I have an immense amount of respect for. I think he's one of the best beat guys out there. Bob talks with someone in his organization that says, so what's up with you guys and the Cubs? And he says, there's a deal. I had heard leading up to this that there was something going on. And I had heard that there were names. Uh, I had heard Vogelbach and Montgomery's names. So I, I spoke with my source and I said, Vogelbach and Montgomery, question mark. And he said, yes. Uh -huh. That's how I put that out there. He said, I'm sorry. He said Vogelbach plus okay. for Montgomery. Uh -huh. So I knew that there was more out there. Now, once you're in that position where the main pieces have been reported. If I don't have that, I'm scrambling for leftovers. I'm trying to get the final deal. I'm trying to get a player involved. Is there cash going back and forth? Are there draft picks going back and forth? What is the end deal here? How can I say final trade colon? Like that's what I'm going for at that point. If I don't have the break on that part, I at least want to get some scraps at the end to get it out there in full. And honestly, at that point, is, is that eyewash? Maybe. But I want people who follow me on Twitter and Facebook and read my columns to understand that I am working for this too. And that you're following me because you believe that I am informed or that I add some sort of value to your baseball watching experience. And I never want there to be a situation where I'm not adding some sort of value when something important is going down. And honestly, this was an important trade. It's the best team in baseball starting to fortify its bullpen. And uh, I'm glad that I you know, was, was in the middle of that. And I wish I could have had the whole thing, but uh, every little scrap you can get, whether it's a name somewhere else, sometimes the agent of the, the traded player will call you up. Sometimes you can uh, say to someone with one of the clubs, who are the other pieces? And they'll give them to you. Uh, you get every bit you can. And I imagine that there are some teams that are harder to crack than others. Is there any advantage to being the Fort Knox of transactions and, and not letting anything leak? Because occasionally you'll have something happen where something is rumored, but it hasn't happened yet. And the player will hear about it and get upset and there will be some kind of kerfuffle there. But that's pretty rare. Usually it just comes out very shortly before the team would have announced it anyway. So is there really an advantage to... Yeah, I had this, I had this exact exact conversation with somebody from a, a very close like hold things close to the vest team a couple days ago uh -huh. and and my argument was that once the deal is consummated and most of these deals are done before i hear about them before you know a lot of times they're reported to major league baseball before and they're actually official trades before the release goes out for my money it, it's harmless at that point for a reporter to know about it. If the players have been informed, if all that is the case, then no, I don't think there's any advantage to waiting. But, you know, some some people like the idea of a press release from the team breaking the trade. I don't get that. I don't get that at all. But then again, it's it's my job 
not to understand that and to frankly kind of be annoyed by that. Mm -hmm. And are Twitter and MLB trade rumors really like the tip of the iceberg and you just don't see most of the stuff that's going on? I mean, we have a sense of which players are available or which players are being talked about the most, but is that just a small fraction of the actual serious trade talks that are going on or do we eventually end up hearing about most of the major stuff? Among reporters, I'd like to think I probably... No, you know, I'm in the top five or ten people as far as knowledge and information goes. I'd say I actually know five percent of what happens. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you no, you've been in a front office. I mean, how much? Uh, how many of those discussions ended up going out there when you were with the Yankees? And I know you. I don't think you were in the room necessarily, but right. stuff filters around the office. I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. how much stuff actually gets out there? Sure, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't. Okay, and so lastly, I've, I won't ask a whole bunch of trade deadline questions because I've kept you long enough and you're probably getting texts constantly, but do you think there's any big news that we don't see coming that we will hear about in the next few days? I know that you know last year was such an incredibly crazy trade deadline. I did some research that showed that it was just the greatest quantity and quality of players ever moved at a trade deadline and this year's crop seems somewhat underwhelming but of course there are some big names that are sort of tenuously linked to trade so are you getting any sense that there will be more to the next few days than we're expecting i think the volume is going to increase and i think over the last 48 hours it's going to be pretty frenzied but as far as big names go i i just don't you know i've i have gone up and down every roster to see who could theoretically be traded and there just aren't big names out there i, I was talking with with one guy whose team needs a, a frontline starting pitcher and he said who is that guy and i said chris sale he's like fine i'll give you that not happening uh-huh. who is that guy i said jose quintana he said i love him not happening <laughs> who is that guy I, I mean, who is that guy? Like, I, he was right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it should be Sonny Gray, but he's been terrible this year. Mm-hmm. So he's not that guy. I, I just don't know on the starting pitching side who that guy is. And, you know, a, a lot of it is if you know someone is available or, or you think you might be able to get someone, maybe that changes things. I mean, are the Red Sox desperate enough to, to trade Yohan Moncada or Andrew Benintendi? I mean, it's worth asking. Look, the, the Royals asked for Lucas Giolito for Wade Davis. Yeah. And, you know, they before Chapman was traded, they talked with the Cubs. And I assume they asked for a big name there, whether it was a, a Baez or a Schwarber or who knows. I mean, someone of that ilk. Every time the Rays talk with someone, you know, they're big game hunting. And they should be because they've got Odorizzi and Moore and Archer. And those are three exceedingly valuable guys. But as far as just a, you know, monumental blockbuster trade, uh, I don't see anything happening. I would have... T- you know, 72 hours ago, I would have said Chris Sale's probably moving, but I'm just not sure if that's the case anymore. I don't know that anyone's going to be willing to pay the price because it is an exorbitant price. If you're the Dodgers, though, to, to me, the Dodgers are such a wild card right now because they're better than they should be. Like with Clayton Kershaw out, they've been playing really good baseball. Mm -hmm. But are they good enough to go out and spend Julio Urias and either Grant Holmes or or Jose De Leon or whoever else, you know, Yadier Alvarez, whoever else it may take? Verdugo Bellinger, are you going to go and give up four or five of those guys to go out and get Chris Sale? It's not going to bankrupt their farm system by any means, but it would put a pretty big dent in it. And for Andrew Friedman to do that, it would just be a giant change in his philosophy and strategy from what he's done. Do you have a Jonathan Lucroy call if he's the best player available who is realistically going to get moved? I actually think Cleveland uh-huh. is where he belongs. I mean, they've I don't know that they have a surplus because you really never have a surplus prospects, but... Uh, they've got a guy in Brad Zimmer or Clint Frazier who can headline a deal. They've got a guy like Ben Heller, who I know a lot of scouts absolutely love and who's sort of flown under the radar, you know, 97, 98 as a starter in the upper levels, good secondary stuff. Mike Clevenger, another guy who really impressed a lot of people uh, during spring training and down at AAA this year. The Indians have the prospect depth to go out and get Jonathan Lucroy and Will Smith 
and cement themselves as certainly the favorite in the American League Central and maybe the favorite in the entire American League. All right. Final count. How many baseball-related texts have you sent and or received during this conversation? I have not sent one. <laughs> I have received one, two, six. My goodness. All right. Anything good? No. Just <laughs> actually, uh, I'll, I'll read one of them here. It's really quiet here. Are you hearing anything? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I'm talking to someone on a podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing Ben Lindbergh's <laughs> It's not going to help anyone. All right. You can read Jeff Passan at Yahoo Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Passan, and you can and should read his excellent, well-written, well-reported book, The Arm. Jeff, thank you very much. You can get back to work now. Thank you for letting me go, Ben. I'm going to go make $4.7 billion worth of clicks here. <laughs> All right. All right, before we talk to Ben Gibbard, let's pause for a second so I can tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. I've experienced that confusion myself. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites wants to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or concert. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Don't buy tickets from sketchy sites. Use SeatGeek. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. With SeatGeek, you never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. If only you could buy baseball players on SeatGeek. Really simplify the trade deadline. Best of all, the Ringer MLB show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code, and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code RINGERMLB today. All right, so we are welcoming in longtime frontman of Death Cab for Cutie, as well as the brains and the voice behind many other musical projects, most recently the theme song to the Ringer MLB show, Ben Gibbard. Hey, Ben. Hi, how you doing? Very well. So you were last seen throwing out the first pitch in Safeco Field last week, and this was not <laughs> your first first pitch experience. And so this second one was, I'd say, a little high, but a very respectable speed. And I'm wondering whether you overcompensated because of your first first pitch experience, which I believe went to the backstop, although I cannot confirm that. Yeah, it, it did go to the backstop. The first one did. You know, I, I think I, I learned from the first one that you can warm up as long as you like in the catacombs of the stadium, but the longer you just stand and wait to go out <laughs> to throw a ball, right? and then, then you're throwing it from a mound as well. You know, I, I kind of, my, that was my only, the only thing I didn't want to have happen the second time was to throw it to the backstop. Yeah. Um, cause I, I, in my very terrible way, I, I played some like adult league baseball and pitched a little bit. So it's not like I can't get it to the plate, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't throw it to the backstop. Right. So if you do it twice, people will wonder if you have the first pitch yips. Will they invite you back for a third time? Exactly. And, and, uh, and yeah, I, I was a little high and outside, but you know, I, I was definitely compensating with, with, with velocity to make sure that it got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were throwing to Tom Wilhelmson who has an ERA over eight this year. So he was probably threatened by the velocity that you showed <laughs> i actually you know i i actually was kind of glad to see him come back you know i there was a, a couple of the first games of the season when the mariners are playing the rangers and i remember there being an all you know tom Wilhelmson came in for the rangers and promptly gave up uh hit hit home run hit something like that yeah and then he you know i i can only assume he was throwing at chris ionetta and then there was an altercation and uh i felt kind of it didn't make me feel good because i always liked tom Wilhelmson when he was on the mariners and it made me sad that he was no longer a Mariner and that now he was fighting with the Mariners. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I do I do feel like a lot of that elevated ERA is kind of the carryover from his time in Texas. And he's been he's been okay. He's been okay the last since he came back over and he just seemed like a really nice guy. It's like one of those things where, you know, I think we all as baseball fans will like yell and scream at baseball players for not doing what we want them to. And then you meet them if you have that opportunity and you realize like these guys are good dudes. They're just trying to do their job, you know? Yeah. 
So I, I uh, yeah. So uh, so yeah. I think he's been he's he's he's. I'm glad he's back on the team. He's been pitching okay, you know. But uh, you know, the Mariners need a little more than that at this point, I think. So uh, we'll get to the Mariners in a second. But I love the theme song. We're thrilled to have it. I hope people will hear it many many times, and that it'll get as stuck in their heads as as it's stuck in mine. So. Can you give us the 30-second song exploder style breakdown of how this theme came to be? Was the melody bouncing around in your head just waiting for someone with a podcast to call? Well, you know, I, I think, I believe you kind of reached out last week. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I, as I was leaving my little studio to go home for the day, I was kind of just like strumming an acoustic guitar and kind of started singing this kind of playful melody and thought, oh, this might be, this might be a good thing for the theme song. So I just kind of recorded it in my phone and then came back on Monday and started kind of putting it together. And after some, a couple, uh, back and forth with, with you, I think we got it to a really good place. I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. So now that we've tested the waters with this one song, we form a band. And we mail each other some beats. We record a full album. We sell a million copies. That's how this works. It's yeah, basically how it works. It's it's really uh, it's really pretty simple. You just gotta <laughs> send stuff back and forth with somebody, and and you know you're bound to sell a million albums. Sure, just how it goes. You yeah, how it goes. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to talk to you not only because you wrote the theme song, which gives you a lifetime pass to the podcast, but also because Itro Suzuki is in the news. Speaking of subjects of Ben Gibbard's songs. So as we speak, he is three hits away from his 3000th in the majors. And the last couple of years, it looked like if he was going to get there, he would be limping to the finish line. But as it has turned out, that is not at all the case. He is not only the old Ichiro, but he's almost a new and better Ichiro in some ways. So I'm wondering what it's like to watch Ichiro have this resurgent season and chase all of these milestones in Miami, because of course you are a lifetime Mariners fan. You watched Ichiro from the start, and I guess there was some slight acrimony when he left and he went to the Yankees, and I'm wondering whether any of that is still present. Do you still feel a pang when you see him succeed in another uniform, or are you just purely happy for him? At this point, I'm 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 just happy for him. I you know I I you know, when he was traded you know across the field to the Yankees, you know it was something that happened early in the day, and then uh, I I've been a season ticket holder for the Mariners for some time now, and so I was like, well, I have to go to this game. You know, I, I have to go see. We have to go. We have to go applaud each other over the past. You know, what it was it ten or eleven years at that point of, of his, him being a Mariner, and it was very painful and weird to see one of your favorite players and you know a franchise icon wearing a Yankees uniform. That's kind of kind of the most painful uniform to see <laughs> an ex Mariner wearing. Right. Uh, Especially because he had been slumping for the Mariners, and then as soon as he became a Yankee, he started hitting 300 again. Yeah, well, that is, that's the great ex Mariner way. If you're not if you're not familiar, <laughs> you know, people leave Seattle and they. They turn into superstars. It seems like it happens all the time. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't ever, I never kind of, I, I feel like we got here in Seattle, we gave Ichiro every opportunity. Or I should say Ichiro gave us every opportunity with his quality of play throughout the years for the Mariners to, you know, achieve something and, and, uh, you know, go to the postseason after, of course, 2001. And, you know, I mean, he, in a lot of ways, he gave us his best years, you know, and, the franchise wasn't able to put together a team around him that could take him uh, to the to the postseason. So, you know, it's kind of hard to be it's hard to be angry or embittered by Ichiro's success at this point, especially because, you know, he's you know playing in a somewhat part time role. Um, but he's been very successful in that. And, and, you know, I'm just I think everybody here in Seattle is just excited for him. You know, it's like there, there are really no hard feelings. I think for a while people were. When he was here in Seattle, people were upset that he wasn't taking on more of a leadership role. But that was never really what he was, you know, meant to kind of the person he was meant to kind of be here in Seattle or anywhere for that matter. So I'm just happy for him at this point. And if we can flash back a bit to the beginning of the Itro experience, the first spring after he signed, there was some skepticism about his spring training performance. He wasn't really wowing anyone. People wondered whether someone with this build and this batting style could be a star in the States. And then, of course, he went two for five on opening day. And I think after April 4th, his average never fell below 320. And, you know, of course, it was just an incredible season from start to finish. But was there a moment when you knew, you know, when you were watching him and he's not Ichiro? I mean, he's a, a star in some other league on some other continent, but he hasn't proven anything here yet. Was there a moment when you saw something that you said, OK, this guy's a superstar wherever he plays? 
I think it's really just over the course of that first season. You know, I mean, there were those moments throughout that season that, you know, there's almost too many to kind of, you know, pinpoint. But, you know, there are just moments throughout that season where you, you realize as a Mariner fan and as a baseball fan that this guy was truly, truly unique and truly special and kind of a once-in-a-lifetime type of player. And, you know, I, I as did everyone, kind of, you know, felt a level of skepticism around whether or not, you know, he was going to be the player he was in Japan over here and obviously he proves proved all all doubters around and wrong in that sense you know yeah and i mean 2001 he wins the rookie of the year he wins the mvp award the mariners win every game and looking back on it with you know the stats that we have now maybe he wasn't the best choice for mvp on the other hand when you look at the guys who put up better numbers jason giambi a rod brett boone right it's possible that some of those guys were aided in certain ways that ichiro wasn't so maybe we don't have to strip that MVP. MVP award from him, but do you have a, a favorite <laughs> Ichiro moment, something he did on the field, or maybe even a quote? He is, of course, an incredible quote, too. Yeah, I mean, there are some quotes that, there's some things, you know, I I love that he, or, I mean, I'm assuming he still does, he always cho- he has always chosen to do his interviews in uh, Japanese, but what a lot of people don't know that he actually speaks very, really great English, right. you know? And, uh, and, you know, there was some kind of, I, I remember seeing an interview with him where he was, he was talking about his favorite phrases in English, which are probably not podcast worthy <laughs> about some very like vulgar, uh, very vulgar phrases that he, he found, he just was giggling like a small child. But I think, you know, I think for me, um, you know, my kind of favorite, one of my favorite periods of each of those career in Seattle is when Ken Griffey Jr. was back in 2009 and just the relationship between those two players was really fantastic you know it just like they the mutual admiration they have for each other the you know the the goofing around and kind of horse play and stuff that you know those guys were always kind of getting up to and the cameras were catching you know over the course of the season was just really hilarious i love the fact that ichiro insisted on referring to ken as george which is his first name yeah you know and uh, and and that was just a really fun a fun season and kind of like a surprise season you know it's like uh, you know 2008 was the was a disastrous Bill Bavese kind of season which you know was headlined by the you know the Eric Bedard trade which still to this day kills me the fact that Adam Jones and Chris Tillman ended up in Baltimore and we ended up with you know a a kind of pitcher made of glass yeah um who you know that, I mean that season was was such a was such a disaster um and then to come out of that season and you know in 2009 to have you know Griffey back and to have the team playing better and over 500 and you know at certain times kind of sniffing the playoffs you know in August but not really making it but still at the end of the season you felt like the team had kind of accomplished something which maybe is kind of is an indicator of how low the bar is here <laughs> that yeah. uh, you know a team can come in third place and you know a fan fans here can see it as a successful season but uh, so that that was that was a really fun period I thought because I think Ichiro came out of his shell a lot more than he had you know, certainly the last couple of seasons is because it's, as the team was so bad, you know. What did you make of the longstanding belief or the, the theory that I'm writing about this week that Ichiro could have been a completely different player if he had wanted to be? You know, that he, I'm sure you saw his batting practices at certain points. And of course, everyone says he could hit home runs almost at will but that that wasn't his preferred style of play. Was that something that you bought? And was it something you ever wanted to see him try? I was just, well, I was just so happy with the player that he was that I wasn't, I, you know, it didn't, you know, I think people would kind of say, you know, you know, express that theory with almost like a, like a, a hint of kind of frustration, you know, like, well, you know, he could hit home runs if he wanted to, right? but oh no, he wants to slap the ball around the field. <laughs> it was kind of, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, the, you know, that kind of theory wasn't put forth out of admiration as much as it was frustration for, you know, kind of what he wasn't doing, which I always thought was unfair to him as a player because he was a great player. You know, he was, he was great at what he was doing. You know, he was spraying the ball around the field, legging out, you know, infield singles, you know, stealing bases, making amazing, you know, uh, catches and throws in the outfield. And, you know, I found it kind of ridiculous that people were so quick to kind of, you know, criticize him for this theory that he could he could hit with more power if he chose to and that he just chose not to. Yeah, although it is sort of, even if accidentally, a sign of respect in a way because that's not something that we say about many players that, oh, he could be a completely different kind of great player if he wanted to. He could just will that to happen. (laughs) And that's kind of, you know, it always just seemed like Ichiro could hit the ball where he wanted to hit it and he just had these 
almost supernatural powers that no one else possessed. So in some way, even if it wasn't meant as one, it was kind of a compliment. I suppose that's true. I guess I guess you could look at it from that angle as well. <laughs> so about current Mariners, last spring you went on Jonah Carey's show at Grantland and you called for change. You wanted new ownership. You wanted a new <laughs> front office and you got what you wanted. And last September, the Mariners hired Jerry Depoto. This past April, Nintendo sold the Mariners to a new ownership group led by John Stanton. So we can talk about the results on the field in a moment, but has the management, has the process been everything you were hoping it would be? I, I'm I'm pleased with, for the most part, with the job that Depoto has done so far. You know, I think, you know, I, I think it was, it was incredibly refreshing as a Mariners fan for someone to come in on a Monday and be making trades on a Tuesday. You know? Yeah. I mean, he just got right to work. You know, there was so much overhaul of the roster, you know, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a mid season mark. You know, there's, we started to see these pieces, you know, in the Seattle media of like, well, this stuff worked, this didn't work. Like we give them, this is, a, you know, people were starting to kind of, as they will and should at times, like second guess some of the moves. But I think for the most part, his attempts to kind of like make the team a little bit more modern, kind of more sabermetrically minded, more athletic, younger. You know, I, I think that he's done a, a, as good a job as he could have done to this point, given the amount of money that is on the books that is already being, you know, accounted for, the players that, that can't be moved. And the fact that the Mariners have a, their, the farm system is, is all, was almost and still is fairly barren at this point. Um, you know, there's really not uh, much depth to trade from, which I think is kind of why we're we're seeing this, you know, you know, Depoto's been saying in the last week or so, like, well, we're just going to kind of stand pat, see how things play out. I think they're kind of taking the uh, position of a contender and uh, not necessarily buyers, but certainly not sellers, you know, because they, I, I believe they sort of are on that bubble, but I just don't think that if they decided they wanted to be buyers, they would have much to offer any teams in return. Yeah, it's it's a tough spot. My my colleague Michael Bauman wrote about it earlier this week because as we speak right now, the Mariners have about a 20% chance of making the playoffs if you go by the Fangraphs odds. And, you know, half of that is winning the division odds and half of it is winning the wild card odds. So a one in five chance of making it, which is not great, not really something you can count on. On the other hand, as I don't have to tell you, the Mariners have the longest playoff drought in baseball, which maybe changes things a little. And it's hard to identify where they are sort of long term. They're not really a team that is definitely at the end of a competitive window. And yet they're not a team that's young and rebuilding. So they're kind of caught in between. So we're a few days from the deadline. Do you want to see major moves? Are you okay with just letting them ride this out and see what happens? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think that if they had more to offer other clubs, if they had, you know, players that were in a payroll window that were movable, you know, I, I'm a, I should say for the record, I'm, I'm a fairly kind of pessimistic sports fan. I, I, I tend to always just uh, expect the worst so that when something good does happen, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I kind of emotionally prepared myself for the failure. Um, and, you know, being a Mariners fan is kind of like, it's kind of set that bar for me. So I, I you know, I, as, I, as I kind of look up and down the roster, you know, there's a couple guys you might be able to move. Maybe Adam, maybe you get something for Adam Lynn. You know, it's just, he's just a, you know, he's around for the rest of the year. And, you know, maybe you can get something for him. But, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, it doesn't seem like, you know, they have a lot of pieces that would bring back a return that would, that would justify losing that player on the off chance that they're able to make like a miracle run in August or something like that. You know, it's like they're on that bubble where it just doesn't, you know, they don't have an Arolis Chapman. They don't have an Andrew Miller. They don't have a player that they could flip and get some amazing prospects back for. So it seems to me like the, the smartest thing for them to do is just kind of stay the course. If they can kind of get something for Steve Ciszek or something, maybe. But, you know, it seems like it's best to kind of just ride this season out and then kind of take stock again in the offseason. From an entertainment standpoint, at least, this has to be a, a more watchable team than some of the recent additions because this team can hit, you know, going by park-adjusted stats. They're the second-best offensive team in the majors. They have the third-most homers. And this is something that you know, at the tail end of the Jack Z era was definitely not the case. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fairly frustrating team, you know, and, and I don't know if that is, I don't know if that is so much because, you know, they came out of the gates really fantastic in April, and May, and they were in first for a while and they were, they went on this run of 
winning, you know, road series in a manner they hadn't done, I, I don't think ever, or at least not for a very long time. And, you know, I think when you get that sniff of the playoffs too early in the season, you start kind of making plans for October in May, <laughs> you know, you're kind of, you're kind of bound to, uh, it's bound to come crashing down in some capacity, or at least the, the team is definitely bound to start playing to the mean. They're going to kind of regress to a certain extent. And I think for me as a Mariners fan, you know, we went through a long period of having great pitching and no offense. And now the Mariners seem to have a great offense and the pitching, the pitching has been just a, a mess this year. What with injury and, and, uh, and the bullpen has been, you know, kind of a, kind of a mess as well. So, you know, but even having said that, I mean, you know, Bill, as I'm sure you're, you know, from your experience, building a baseball team, it seems like a very difficult venture. And, you know, it, it, for getting everything to kind of hit all at once, it seems like kind of catching lightning in a bottle. And it just doesn't seem like it's, you know, with this team, they've had a really tough time doing that. Yeah. And the one constant during the down years was Felix. And of course, Felix Day was always an event, no matter how bad the team surrounding him was. And so now, you know, the rest of the team has improved to some extent, but he's having a rough year. He's had two tough starts since coming off the DL for the calf strain and still has a respectable ERA. But as you know, you're someone who dives into all the stats and there are some worrisome signs there, you know, all the peripherals say that he's been less effective than ever before his velocity is down his age finally begins with a three so how worried are you about felix uh you know i i'm i don't know if worried is the right word i think i think that time catches up with every baseball player and you know what i mean if i'm in felix you know felix has debuted in what 2007 i believe 2005 yeah you know so we've had years of brilliant felix hernandez and the mariners were just never able to put a playoff caliber team around him and you know he has a lot of innings on that arm he's throwing a lot of pitches and yeah i mean definitely at the beginning of the season you start seeing that the velocity down and you see him getting hit harder and you're like well this doesn't look good at all you know and i think that i i would not consider him an, an ace anymore i still think that he has some life and some years left in that arm but you know, I, we're not, as Mariners fans, going to, I don't think we're going to be able to look to him to be, you know, to stop stop the losing streaks and to, you know, be the big game pitcher. You know, I, I just I just think that there's a very good chance that, that you know, those games are behind him. And it's it's a shame that, you know, they were, they were unable to put, put a team behind him that could get him to the playoffs when he was truly in his prime. So, I mean, we'll see. You know, you never know. I mean, you know, the Mariners could sneak in this year or depending on what happens next year. And Felix is certainly not done by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, he's he's definitely not the pitcher he once was. I mean, that's kind of obvious to everybody at this point. Yeah. Emotionally speaking, is it preferable for you to come into the year with no expectations and have your lack of expectations fulfilled? Or <laughs> do you like having, you know, the last couple of years, the Mariners have come into the year Certainly this year, I would say they were maybe the consensus pick in the division. And last year, they were a fairly popular pick, too, and it hasn't panned mm -hmm. out. So do you prefer the disappointment after having your expectations raised or having no expectations to start with? Well, I certainly never I never want the disappointment, you know, but I, I, I think that, you know, there's always and all those like preseason pieces about teams that, you know, writers are choosing to, you know, they're picking them as the playoff pick. You know, there's always that section towards the bottom of the article that says like, if everything breaks right, right. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then there's like, you know, this happens, this happens, that happens, this happens. If everything breaks wrong, this happens, then this happens, this happens, this happens. And it seems like more, more times than not, you know, the things that break wrong, that, that list by at the end of the season tends to be longer than the things that break right. And, you know, I'm but a Mariners fan. I'm not a like, uh, you know, I'm not a baseball analyst, you know, outside of, you know, my just hobby. But it, it seems to me that the, the Mariners for some time now have had a real developmental problem. It, they seem to be able to, you know, draft, they drafted high and been unable to kind of convert these draft picks into major league caliber players for some time now. And, um, and with the exception of Kyle Seeger, I mean, and to an, maybe to an extent, Taiwan Walker, there doesn't seem to be any picks that they've made in the past seven or eight years that have amounted to much at this point. So, you know, it, it seems to me that the, the problems for the Mariners kind of start in the low minors and the development of their players to, into big league caliber players. But Well, one of these seasons, they will surprise you and you'll have your hopes raised and they won't let you down. I hope it happens sometime soon. I hope so. You know, I, I often wonder, though, if, if I have the emotional fortitude to handle like a World Series, a Mariners World Series run. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, I... 
I mean, you know, it's like, we, you know, it's been a long time and uh, I've kind of often, you know, I think when the Mariners were playing earlier in the season and me and my friends were kind of talking about, you know, what we were going to do in October, where are we going to watch the games, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, my fiance was like, you know, you're going to have to move out for that period. You know this, right? You can't, you, you, you will be too emotionally unstable for me to live with you. So, you know, I'll get back to you if, if and when this ever happens and let you know if I had to move out of my house for the extent of the Mariners playoff run. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not holding my breath that it's going to be this year. Yeah. Well, maybe you can channel the anxiety into creative energy and, and produce a Mariners playoff run album or something, some sort of Layla type <laughs> creative explosion. Well, I feel like, you know, I feel like Macklemore is kind of, he has kind of cornered the market on, uh, <laughs> on, you know, Mariners related tunes. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I try to kind of, you know, make myself available to the team, I think that he's their number one choice. So I, I imagine if the Mariners uh, do make a run, you're, you'll you'll probably hear a, a Macklemore album uh, of Mariners songs before, before you hear one of mine. <laughs> All right. Well, you're between tours right now. Are you working on anything you feel like talking about? Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, we're just uh, slowly kind of uh, closing out this, this album cycle, which started in early 2015. And playing our last shows on this record in September. So, uh -huh. yeah, just, you know, I, I think we'll probably want to be working on a record at some point next year. So I'm just, you know, writing music and trying to live life and kind of enjoy the summer in Seattle while it lasts. Well, I'm glad we caught you at the right time. You're writing songs for the Monkees. You're writing songs for the Ringer. You're really exploring the studio space. So thanks for the music. Thanks for the Mariners talk. Good luck with whatever's next. It was a pleasure. It was nice talking to you, Ben. Okay, so that is it for us today. We'll be back next Tuesday, which is the day after the trade deadline. So we will have some transactions to break down. Spare a thought for poor Jeff Passan as he tries to navigate this weekend without annoying any sources. Enjoy the rumor mill. We will talk to you next week. Go, go.